I asked last week after the ethics class one for people to send me some emails about ethics situations in which they find themselves or they've read about and found others in. Uh, I've gotten some wonderful emails back, uh, some heart-wrenching emails back. Uh, I assure you, while I'm not in the ethics advice dispensing business, in other words, I'm not writing you back telling you, thus saith Mark, much less the Lord, uh, I can tell you that over everybody that's written me, thank you so much. I've kept them on a list for my prayers this week, and I'll pray that God's guidance works with you and maybe through this class to help you with a few things. Uh, there wasn't really anything that I thought that useful uh, um, that I felt comfortable sharing. There were wonderful ones that'd be extremely useful, um, but uh, uh, I decided the, uh, the, the little bit that may help I'll use in our next class. For now, though, uh, uh, let me start out by telling you that I don't know what your experience has been. My experience has been sometimes practical jokes can be quite funny. Uh, other times they're not. Uh, uh, generally, they're funny if we're doing them on other people. They're not if other people are doing them on us. I can remember a practical joke that was done on me. I was a young lawyer. Uh, I'd been out of law school long enough to have a mortgage and to have a baby. Uh, which means mountains of early debt. Remember, uh, there, there's the happy time in your life where you're too broke to get credit cards. And then there's the miserable time where you make enough to get broke because you get credit cards. I was in that early stage where you make enough to get the credit cards so that you're really broke, wishing I'd been so broke I'd never gotten the credit cards. And uh, uh, I was uh, uh, working. I, I worked at a very large firm. There was, uh, the firm had hundreds and hundreds of lawyers. I worked on a very small team of maybe 10 lawyers. There was a team leader or two. They were at the very top. I was the youngest lawyer at the very bottom. I worked under the supervising of a mid-level lawyer. This mid-level lawyer did not know the Lord and I cared for him, and I wanted him to know God. And so I would talk to him about God. I would uh, pray for him every day. I carpooled with him in an effort to, to help influence him for the Lord. This was very important to me. I thought it my part of my mission on earth to, to be God's witnessing testimony to this gentleman, if nothing else, by the life I led, uh, if I wasn't going to try and choke and strangle him with a Bible. So... We uh, 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 worked on a team where the lead partner did not seem to care too much for me. The word that had gotten back to me was uh, he didn't care too much for Christians. And uh, uh, because I was a Christian, uh, uh, I was not in his favor. And he kept his distance from me pretty, pretty sufficiently. I don't know if that's truly how he felt. I never had a conversation with the gentleman, and so it's not fair for me to say it. It's just what I'd been told. And uh, uh, at the end of a year, you get your evaluations at this place. And, and the evaluations are done privately where partners and lawyers you work for will fill out an evaluation and give it to the associates committee that takes those evaluations. And I can remember the trepidation I felt knowing those evaluations were going on. I was leaving work one night. I got to the elevator bank with the lawyer, the supervising lawyer that I had been praying for and that I carpooled with. And as we got to the elevator, he said to me, you owe me. 
and you owe me big. And I said, what's up? And he reached into his chest pocket and he pulled out a sheet of paper. No, it was not a Champion Forest Tithe envelope. It was, it was a different sheet of paper. He reached into his pocket and he pulled out a sheet of paper that had been folded up. And he said, I found myself in the file room that had the associates reviews. And I looked at your folder. I said, yeah. He says, you know the team leader guy that, that hates your guts because you're a Christian? I said, yeah. He said, I read his evaluation of you. I said, how bad was it? He said, he recommends you get fired. I mean, I just, my heart sank. And he said, but don't worry. I pulled the review out. I have it here. And there are enough other reviews in there, no one will even notice it's missing. So you're clear. But you owe me big. I remember thinking, well, here's an ethical dilemma. <laughs> hmm. Mortgage, baby, debt, need for a job, versus testimony, trust in God, right and wrong. Then, being a lawyer, I started thinking, but technically this ethical violation <laughs> is his, not mine. And somewhere, I still don't know where, knowing my weaknesses, I still don't know where, but somewhere by the strength of God and the grace of God, I managed to eke out of my voice box the following, you have to put it back. He says, if I put it back, you'll get fired. I said, if I get fired, I get fired, but you can't do that. You got to put it back. And he said, I knew you'd say that. That's your Christianity speaking. He says, but you're not my boss. I'm yours. I'll do whatever I want. And he put it back in his pocket. I mean, it was horrible. I, I, the next three months, I just worked day and night. I, I mean, I, I was just like, anything I could do to try and, because I didn't know what he did or anything else. It was three months later, I found out the whole thing had been a practical joke he was playing. Yeah, that's one of those ones that just really wasn't that funny. Um, but boy, they got a lot of work out of me those three months. Um, I can... I think I'll take to my grave standing there. I've got that Kodak moment in my mind standing there thinking, what do I do right now? Now, I don't know about your life, and I don't know what tough ethical decisions you've had to make. Lots of our decisions that we make every day are not all that tough. But there are some. They come in family. They come in personal walk. They come in business. There are tough, ethical decisions we have to make. And how do we make those decisions? How do we decide good and bad? How do we decide right and wrong? How do we decide what's moral and what's immoral? Well, that's what we're trying to unfold some in this class on Paul. 
And so in our Pauline theology section of this class, we've carved out three lessons to deal with Paul on ethics. The thing is, it takes three lessons for me to do it, and the first two lessons we don't even get to Paul much. So just bear with me. Last week we started this, and if we could look in the rearview mirror at last week, we would see that we started out talking about what ethics are, what morals are. Specifically, we took the word ethics. We said this is a word that comes from the Greek word ethos that means habit. Or it means custom. It's how you behave. It's, it's part of who you are. We said there is a Latin word that means habit or custom. The Latin word is most. It's also in the form of more. But from the Latin word we get the word morals. So ethics morals, morality, they're all the same basic thing. Oh, you'll find some scholars who've tried to force a differentiation in the meaning of those words, but there's really not one. Most people don't have one. We're using them the same way. We talk about ethics, we're talking about morals, we're talking about good and evil, we're talking about right and wrong. And so we started with an explanation of that last week, and after that last week we covered also the idea that we can read in the Old Testament ethics and some of the things we read in the Old Testament seem very different than the ethics and morals that we have today, that we teach to our children, that we preach from the pulpits, that we read about in the New Testament. And we talked last week, and you can go on the web and find last week's lesson, but we talked about how Old Testament ethics seem to fall in, in one way you could divide them, I should say, is into three categories. They're the ethics of worship that tell you in the Old Testament how to worship. To come into the house of God with a clean heart, with a pure heart. That you should come with, with praise in your voice. You should come with dancing in your heart and thanksgiving. You should come with, with uh, 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 joy. And all of the, the, the instructions, the morals, the ethics, the, the right way to worship the Lord is set out in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's got a set of morals in the law, both in the, teaching, the stories of the law and in the law itself. It would tell you uh, 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 what to do, what not to do. We have the Ten Commandments. You know, don't commit adultery. You don't lie and perjure yourself. You don't bear false witness. You don't, you know, any number of different things that are there in the law. There's the wisdom literature. You train up a child in the way he should go. You go to the way of the ant you sluggard and you set aside for due season. You know, there's a lot of wisdom literature in the Old Testament that gives us morals, that gives us ethics, that gives us good versus evil, right versus wrong. And so some of those make a lot of sense to us today. The good general ethic teaching out of the law that says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Oh, that's a good ethic. That one makes a lot of sense. But then there are some ethics in the Old Testament that don't make so much sense. And, and you can read about, for example, in Numbers, when two men are out collecting firewood on the Sabbath. And the people drag them in front of Moses. What does God want us to do? Moses checks it out and says, stone them. And they get killed for it. Well, that seems rather harsh. Where's turn the other cheek? Where's put your sword up, Peter? 
Or there's the passage about Rahab, the prostitute, who hides the Jewish spies. She's got the two Jewish spies in her house, her brothel. By the way, that's not because they were there on a social visit. If you're a Jewish spy, where better to get lost? Most of the people in there are out-of-towners already. But they're in the brothel. The king of Jericho is looking for them. They get hidden up on the roof. And when the, the, the king's men come and say, Do you know where the spies are? She lies. Says they went that away. And the men go off and she's saved and the spies are saved. And Hebrews puts her in the hall of fame. And holds her up as a woman of faith. And you scratch your head and you say, wait a minute. She lied. Or if you go to Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwife women. Says, uh, not Hebrew midwife, the midwives of the Egyptians who, who, who deliver babies for the Hebrews. Says if the Hebrews are getting too numerous, if it's a boy, kill them. And just tell the mom they didn't survive the birthing ordeal. The midwives fear God too much. They don't do that. They let the male children live. And when Pharaoh calls them on the carpet, they lie to Pharaoh. They say, man, those women, they're vigorous. Those boy babies pop out before we show up. And God takes care of the women because of the women and and gives them their own offspring. Blesses them because the women have protected the sanctity of life in spite of the fact they lied in the process. So you sit there and you scratch your head and you ask yourself questions. You say, well, has God changed? Is, you know, Marcion, the second century heretic, said the God of the Old Testament's got to be different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament's got people getting killed right and left. He has all the people of Ai wiped out. Men, women, and children. Tells the Jews don't leave any survivors. The God of the New Testament got to be different. He says, love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you. He says, don't commit murder, don't even hate. Well, did God change? Was God one way then and a different way now? Did right and wrong change? Back in the Old Testament, was it okay to do those things? But now in the New Testament, it's not. (laughs) Be careful. Go read the book of Acts. Read what happens when... Ananias and Sapphira lie about selling their possessions. Got some issues in the New Testament ethics that sort of make you say, whoa, too. But did right and wrong change? You know, was it in the Old Testament, you're told in the Ten Commandments to keep the Sabbath. In the New Testament, doesn't seem to be that way, does it? Has that changed? God pull an eraser out and take that word off the Ten Commandments? We got nine now. Do some of God's commands change? Oh, some of them we keep the same, but just some of them. We'll just erase the Sabbath one, but we keep the one on, on adultery. Do we have now carte blanche to go to New Testament directions and start changing them as well? Oh, Homosexual behavior was wrong in the Bible, but that's because they weren't so civilized as we are today. And so we change that? 
How do we address these questions? What do we do? Well, instead of questions, let me suggest to you that there are at least some answers to these. Biblical answers, did God change? No. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's what the Bible claims, and that means it's true. If the Bible is true, God does not change. If you don't agree with that premise, then we need to go back and have a different class on the truth of the Bible. But I'm not going to spend that time here. We've got those on the internet. You're welcome to go listen to them. But assuming the Bible to be true, God didn't change. Did right and wrong change? No. Not in its ultimate sense. God, in, in, in it, well, we'll get to that a little bit further in this class. Did some of God's commands change? Well, not really. Sort of, but not really. We're going to discuss that in class too. But to do this, I need to tell you what uh, uh, scholars would call presuppositions for a minute. Presuppositions. I don't know if you know that word. A lot of you will. Some of you won't. If you don't, that's no big deal. You're about to learn it. A presupposition is something that you're already assuming to be true. This is something you presuppose. In other words, we're going to talk about ethics, but when we talk about ethics, there are three things that I'm not going to try and prove to you today. I'm already assuming these three things to be true. And you need to know that. Because I send these lessons out to readers, and one of the readers, who's a philosophy teacher uh, in the Midwest, sent me an email back saying, well, you've made some pretty big assumptions. I said, well, I know, but that's because we've got other classes to deal with those assumptions. So I'm not blindly making them, but I'm making them in this class because we've dealt with these subjects already. In other words, they're building blocks that we need to deal with ethics. Building block number one is God doesn't change. Oh, you can go back in church history and in the series we taught there, read about Athanasius, read about the Cappadocian fathers. You can go listen to these lessons online where they talk about and they prove the immutability, this is the theological word, of God. God doesn't change. He is constant. He is the same. But we're just making that as a presupposition here. We're assuming that as we make this discussion. A second assumption is that Scripture is accurate. It truly reflects what God wants it to reflect. Scripture truly imparts to us the words, the knowledge, the relationships that God wants us to have. So we can responsibly and reliably look to Scripture as His revelation. And a third assumption that I'm making is that man's thinking, apart from the Holy Spirit, is darkened. Apart from the Holy Spirit, man doesn't really perceive and understand spiritual things too well. Okay? So with those presuppositions, I want to give you our, our meaning the plural me, <laughs> and anybody who agrees with me, our viewpoint of ethics. Here it is. Moral absolutes exist in God. 
but they manifest themselves, they show themselves differently in various cultures. Some of them do. And they're not always expressible in the purest form. Okay, now that may not make much sense to you right now, but I hope it will by the end of this class because the way I'm going to do the class is I'm going to try and explain it and not only explain it in and of itself, I want to differentiate it. Show the differences between my model that I'm giving you and the model uh, that, that you may find in other places. And then we'll have our points for home. So with that, uh, in the next 24 minutes, fasten your seatbelt and let's start with the explanation. In Psalm 4, verse 6, the psalmist asked this question. Who will show us some good. Ron, I'd like to see good. Okay, Constable would too. I'd like to see good, Sandy. Who will show me? Who's going to show me some good? Who's going to show me real good, true good? Pure good, pure, undefiled, 100%, dead on, from the heart, good. Not sort of good, but frayed at the edges. I want good. Who's going to show it to us? The psalmist answers the question. He says, lift up the light of your face, O Lord. Because the only place we find pure, unadulterated, absolute, 100%, from the heart, true and pure, through and through good, is from God. I love what Pope John Paul II said about this. Rare for me to quote the Catholic Pope in this Southern Baptist class. Don't develop hives. He's dead right on this. He said, only God can answer the question about what is good because He, God, is the good itself. And notice in the Veritatis Splendor, which is the encyclical that the Pope issued, that this came from, he capitalizes that second good because he's talking about God. Only God can answer the question about what is good because He is the good itself. You want to know what's good? You want to know what's right? You want to know what's moral? You want to know what's ethical? No one can show you good unless God lifts His face before you. Now fortunately, we have Jesus Christ who is the very image of God, Scripture says. We have Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of of God dwelt bodily. We can see the face of God when we behold the life of Christ. Hence we say Jesus was perfect. For indeed he was. Pure D through and through from heart to mind to action of body. By the way, only a pope who understood that concept could be the kind of pope who could also make fun of himself at times. 
I do have great respect for Pope John Paul II, obviously. This has been a dilemma that people have debated for years. This isn't something new. There was a time where Socrates, Socrates you'll recall, Socrates lived in the 400 B.C. era in Athens. And Socrates was going to be called to trial for corrupting the youth of Athens. Socrates goes to the court systems and he finds this fellow there, a young kind of arrogant fellow, named Euthyphro. Euthyphro is there to prosecute his dad for murder. His dad had killed a slave, the slave being himself a murderer. The slave had killed someone, the dad got upset, so the dad killed the slave. Euthyphro comes to prosecute his dad. Socrates sees Euthyphro there and he says, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm here because I understand what's right and what's holy. And Socrates says, oh, would you please share that with me? Because if you share that with me, then when I get called to trial for corrupting the youth, I can say, you're my teacher. And I only do what you do because I only want to teach what's good and right and holy. And so Euthyphro says to Socrates, he says, okay, well, first of all, uh, uh, what's good and right and holy is, is something that uh, is done right. Socrates says, wait a minute, that's one example. That can't really be what the word means. You can't just look at one example of a deed and say, that's what the word means. Give me the real meaning. He says, okay, well, what's holy is what the gods all agree on and do. And Socrates says to him, wait a minute. Is holiness what the gods are? Are you saying that the gods themselves, they are holy? We define holy and good by the gods and their own behavior. Or is holiness and good something else that the gods just happen to be doing because they like to do virtuous things? That's called, in philosophical circles, the Euthyphro Dilemma. Okay, this is a free class. <laughs> why is if this Socrates is Plato writing about it because Socrates didn't write anything he got killed but Plato was his student so Plato recorded these dialogues that's where we read most of what Socrates had to say the Euthyphro dilemma in other words is God himself good or is there this entity of, or, or form of goodness and virtue that God just happens to follow well, the biblical answer is, good is the definition of what God's morality is. It's not God has decided to follow. It's not God decided, oh, here's good out there. I think I'll be that way. No, good is our meaning of good. Our definition of moral and ethical and good is the behavior and, and morality and characteristics of God. God is good. All good is from the unchanging God. Not from in the sense that He just gives it, but from in the sense that it is who He is and it proceeds forth from his personage. When the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, tell me what I need to be doing so that I can earn my eternal life. 
Before Jesus slaps him down for such arrogance, I've copied the version out of Mark 10, 18 instead of the Matthew version, but let's look at it together. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him and said, good teacher, calls Jesus good. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why are you calling me good? No one is good except God alone. Now the fellow was right calling Jesus good because Jesus is God. The fellow didn't know that. Why are you calling me good? The point that I want to make here is nobody's good except God alone. Nobody is 100. I sent this lesson out to 36 people yesterday or Friday. One of them sent me a response back and said, I don't agree with your lesson because I really don't sin much. I did when I was a younger man. But I've reached a point where I don't think sin is, 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 it's just not that hard to avoid sin. I will not let him teach for me in this class. (laughs) Everything that's created by God is good. God is good. That's who he is. That gives meaning to the word good. You want to know what the word good means? I can tell you. It means how God behaves. You want to tell me what's right and moral in a situation? I can answer that. What would God do? Okay, I answered it with a question. But it's kind of an answer. It tells you where to find the answer. Now, if you were in church this morning, our pastor talked about uh, uh, paradise at one point. I was proud of him for not stooping to putting up a slide of two dice because he said, what do you think of when you think of paradise? And that was the first thing I thought of. (laughs) But I want to consider paradise. Technically, I guess that'd be a pair of die. You'd have to have four dice to have a pair of dice. Someone will email me on that, so let me get that correction out now. Consider the teachings and implications of the Garden of Eden. I tried to find a picture. The pastor was talking about paradise. He had Florida up there. Come on. We know Lubbock, Texas is the closest thing we can find. (laughs) Except for the fact that it talks about trees in the Garden of Eden, and we don't have those in Lubbock. So instead, we're going to go somewhere else for this picture. Think back about the Garden of Eden. Man is given total freedom to eat and do as he pleases with one exception. Man is not allowed to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because man's not the owner of that fruit. The fruit of knowing good and evil, must be God's alone. God is the source of good and this knowledge of good and evil. Man can't take that role on himself and act like that tree is his to eat. We are in trouble if we start trying to define good and evil apart from God and his instructions and directions.
He has a character. He has morality to him. And that's who he is. Now the problem is, man tried to go there himself. And as a result, man, woman, children, the world has fallen. And in a fallen world, things don't function the way they were made to be functioned. God made them good. Under Satan's influence, they have come into disrepair and destruction. If we look at Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says it this way. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's what earth is. That's what humanity is right now. It's a darkness. It's this present darkness that needs God's will to be done. Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6 that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The problem is in earth God's will is not always being done. It's not God's will for cancer to ravage someone's body and steal them away from their children. Oh God is going to work within that but it's never the way he set it up to be from the start. God will make the best of a bad situation. That's our faith. But heaven help any of us who go to that tragic family. Even heaven help anyone go to the children who've just lost a dad and say, well, it must have been God's will. No, Jesus weeps over the death of Lazarus. Because God's will is that we would have been safe and secure and perfect and good the way he made us. But sin has entered into the world and we're not that way and the world's not that way and our bodies are not that way. And we see and live the results of this fall all the time. But let's apply it to ethics now with some case examples. So now we live in an age of war. We live in an age where a general's got to make a decision. Am I going to send these troops into battle or those troops into battle? Am I going to sacrifice these lives to save those lives? Well, God's will is that no life be sacrificed. But there are times where the decision is not going to allow us to it in the absolute pure 100% morality the way God wanted it to be, we are having to make the best of a broken situation. This is what Jesus explained in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, the people came, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're going to try to trick him. I'm running out of time, so I'm not putting it on the screen, but you know the story. They come to Jesus and they say, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason at all? Jesus' response, he says, haven't you read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They'll become one flesh. They're no longer two but one. What God joined together, let not man separate. They said, is it legal to do it for any cause? Jesus said, set the law aside for a minute, go back before the law. 
before Moses, before Sinai, before Abraham, before Noah. Go back to creation. That's where you're going to see God's pure will. And his pure will is what God has joined together. Let no man tear asunder. The two become one flesh. That's God's pure will. And then they said, well, Jesus, we caught you. Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Uh Jesus said, because of the hardness of hearts, Moses allowed it. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. See, it's, it's not God's perfect will. It's just sometimes it's the, the system that God had put in place for the Jews because of hardness of heart, because God was trying to make the best of a bad situation. There is a difference between God's perfection and good and sometimes the way it works out. We see this in the Old Testament. God's perfection is not for Rahab the harlot to lie about the spies up above. But when she's faced with the dilemma of delivering them from her faith perspective, she didn't understand God might intervene. So from her faith perspective, she thought, I either turn these guys in and they get killed... And then the army invades anyway, and I die with everyone else, or, which is bad, that's sin, that's not God's will, or, in her mind, I tell Fib, the lesser of two evils, if you will. Now, I'm not in a position to be her judge, and I'm not in a position to judge what I would do, but that's the perception. That's the, that is the moral implication. We live in a broken world. There are moral absolutes. God says, this is the way it is. Do this, don't do this. But there are rare occasions where I think people are faced with answers that don't have a clear biblical response. And you struggle to find the answer. And you're looking for guidance. And that's where we understand the morality of God, because we seek what would God do in this situation? What would God do? We've got the wealth of Scripture, and He's given us the answers there to understand. But we've got to, this is why Paul says we listen with the Spirit, but we we pray for the renewal of our minds. Now this is very different from what the world might teach. This is different from relativism. No, Kevin Parker. That's a different relativism. Not family relative. Relativism. The idea that everything's relative. Oh, there's no real right and wrong. Wrong. There is right or wrong. There's absolute right and wrong. But there are times and places where that right and wrong have a different meaning. That's why it's wrong to violate the Sabbath. But when Jesus and his apostles are walking through a field and they pluck the grain because they're hungry, Jesus is able to say, we're not violating that. Understand, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Don't tell God incarnate that he's violating his law. That's like the, the, the divorce question. Oh, you're going to trick the guy who wrote it?
skepticism. The skeptics say, uh, hey, we can't really know what right and wrong is. All we are anyway is a machine. We're just a mixture of our environment and the genetic DNA code. We're nothing more than that. We don't really have freedom. We don't really have dignity. We don't have moral choices. We're just cogs in a machine. And the Bible says, no, there is moral truth and we can know it. Oh, we may not know it fully, but we can truly know it. And we can make choices. We can choose to follow God or we can choose to follow our hearts or others. They're real choices. I distinguish situation ethics. The idea that the end justifies the means. Oh, as long as you're working for good, it's okay if you steal, cheat, and lie. Wrong. We have absolute morals that say stealing, cheating, and lying is wrong. And so we avoid stealing and cheating and lying. Oh, if you're faced with that, if, if, if you're Corey Ten Boom and you're hiding Jews and the Nazi soldiers are at your door asking if you've seen any Jews... And you say, no, uh, I'm not going to judge you for that as long as you didn't say it cavalierly and you realize that the heart of God's broken. But the heart of God would have been broken if you have said, yeah, they're right upstairs in the attic. You want me to get them for you? In this sordid, evil, present darkness where we dwell it's not always as wonderful as we'd like it to be. By the way, let me add one more distinction. Your conscience. Some people think uh, it's just a matter of how you feel about it. As long as you're following your conscience, that gut feeling inside. Follow your gut. Your conscience is, just because we don't see it, and because we like um, watch certain kung fu movies or something i don't know we we think there must be really something cool behind the conscience maybe sometimes come on the conscience is something within us that works within our minds that god's out to renew that as we think and as we process and as we've had life experiences enforce within us some type of morality but it's not the ultimate measuring stick of right and wrong you will find that listening to the voice within you is no guarantee that you're doing right or wrong. Paul will talk about it. Paul will talk about it in a positive way and show how God can use the conscience. But he'll also talk about people whose consciences are seared. 1 Timothy. Or Titus where he talks about people whose consciences are defiled. So your conscience is not where you come. To these answers. You come to them by the light of God. And our desire is never to find the easy way out. It's never to find an excuse for doing wrong. It's never to find an easier road. The road of God's a harder road. That's what Jesus said. He said, hey, you read you can't commit adultery. Well, that's true. But don't have it in your heart. You read you can't kill someone. That's true. But don't hate them. The path that he calls us on, the ethical, moral path of his character, is more than a set of rules of do's and don'ts. It's got motives and heart and everything to it. And so next lesson that I teach, hopefully, will be the thrilling conclusion as we tie Paul in. We're out of time. Points for home. First, God says in Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy 
because I'm holy. We're made in His image. We're made to have the same morals and ethics that He does. That's where fulfillment is. That's where purpose is. That's where answers are. We are to be holy because He is holy. The Lord our God is holy. And we're to be like Him. He's good. He is the source of good. And we're to read it. And we're to understand it. And we're to see the revelation. And we're to see the life of Christ. And we're to let His light shine upon us. We are to pray the the numbers prayer. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. That's where you see it. That's who is good. That's where morality comes from. And that's what consistently ties the Old Testament through to the New Testament. It's always, whether it's don't eat pigs because you don't know how to bleed them and you're going to get trichinosis, or because I want to teach you that there is holy nourishment that is not everything else that the world consumes. There are lots of reasons that God in His holiness would have given that law that doesn't make Him a different God just because He tells Peter, hey look, technically as long as you do it right, everything's clean to eat. It's not that God changed His mind. It's not that the law changed. The the ethic in that was God is the source of the knowledge of good and evil. You follow what He says. It was right for the Jews in that period of time and for us to understand in history they weren't supposed to be eating swine. And if I have a ham sandwich today for lunch, God's not upset. Inherently, at least because it's ham. See, because your hardness of your heart, Moses allowed. There are some things that God has allowed in Scripture that aren't examples for us. Oh, hey, it's okay to lie. Rahab the harlot did. She got written up real good. Well, she also did a bunch of other things you're not supposed to be doing. That's why she's Rahab the harlot. (laughs) We look to God for our good. But we understand the consistency of this message. And Paul says, this is why... uh, 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 Paul speaks so much of praying for people because that's what we need to do. We need to be in prayer. We need to pray for each other. Look at the prayer Paul prayed in Ephesians. Um, I'll read it to you. But I want you to go home. I want you to think of someone that is involved in an ethical dilemma right now and pray for It may be yourself. But I want you to take out Ephesians chapter 1 and I want you to find this prayer that starts in verse 16. And I want you to pray it word for word. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Because that's the ethic. That's the good. Lord, it is my prayer over everyone that hears this message that you will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, that their eyes and hearts will be enlightened, that they will know and understand the riches of the glorious inheritance you have and the greatness of your power to work within us. May we look for reasons to grow closer to you and never try to simply justify what we want to do by our choices and actions, Lord. In Jesus, we pray this. Amen.